The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Save big money on everything for your projects. Now at Menards. We have it all for garden and landscaping essentials. Visit our outdoor garden center today and update your backyard space. Grid Accents Lattice Panels have a timeless design with an innovative design that's simple to install and requires almost no maintenance. Save big on lattice panel options at Menards. View our entire selection of garden center products today on Menards.com. Save big money at When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now, now, prepare yourself for the only talk radio show you'll want to turn up. Crank this thing. Sirius XM Pandora presents the place where your hard rock and metal voice can still be heard. Unfiltered, uncensored, say whatever you want. Hit the record button. Anything can happen, you know. I know that ain't nobody out there came to be mellow tonight, now did you? I say, I say there ain't nobody. I'll say there ain't nobody not out there that even wants to be a little bit mellow now, is there? Anybody wants to get mellow, you can turn around and get the fuck out of here, all right? This is the Trunk Nation Podcast with host A. Trunk. Hey, everybody, it's Eddie Trunk, and welcome to the Eddie Trunk Podcast and our first of the new year of 2023 hope everybody had a great holiday season christmas hanukkah new year's whatever it is you celebrated i hope it was great and safe and healthy and uh wishing you all a safe and healthy happy 2023 everybody thank you for checking out the podcast of course by now you know new episodes every single thursday be sure to subscribe so you do not miss one as we bring you some great interviews with the biggest names in rock and metal music And this week, well, you'd be hard-pressed to find a bigger name in the world of hard rock music than the guy we have for you on the podcast this week. And that is the guy who is the singer on one of the biggest-selling records in music history across all genres. That would be ACDC's Back in Black, and that singer would be Brian Johnson. Yes, this week on the Eddie Trunk Podcast, I am happy to bring you now this exclusive interview, which aired initially a few weeks ago on my Sirius XM radio show, Trunk Nation. As I tell you guys every week, all the interviews you hear on this podcast originated on the radio show on Sirius XM. So we always remind you, if you're in the U.S. or Canada, to please come on board and join me for the radio show every day, live 3 to 5 Eastern time, 
Faction Talk Channel 103 or on the SiriusXM app anytime you want. If you're only listening to the podcast, you're only getting a tiny, tiny taste of what we do on a daily basis on the radio Monday through Friday. So come on board and join us for Trunk Nation every day. Again, Faction Talk 103, noon to 2 Pacific, 3 to 5 Eastern. And if you can't listen in that window, no worries at all, because you can always go to the app and listen to full shows, interviews, or whatever you want. Audio and video is there as well. Uh, here on the podcast, though, we uh, eventually get around to bringing you a few of the interviews that aired on the radio show, and that's what I'm about to do for you on this week's show. This was a big one, and of course it was, um, as I mentioned, with Brian Johnson. Brian has a new book out now called The Lives of Brian. It is his memoir. Interestingly, it ends really with him joining ACDC and making Back in Black. It opens with him talking about his hearing issues and getting over those. So there is a smattering of ACDC stuff in the book, but the book is really more about his upbringing and his path to getting in ACDC. And uh, we talked to Brian, I talked to Brian here for over an hour straight. So not only do I have one of the biggest uh, names and one of the biggest bands in music history on for you this week, but it is an extended interview that clocks in well over an hour. And Brian called in from his home in Florida. I've known Brian for many, many years. I've been lucky enough to do a lot of uh, stuff with Brian over the decades, both in TV and radio. I've often said when asked that he is easily one of my favorite people to talk to, one of the most grounded, regular guys you could ever meet, and just happens to be, of course, the lead singer of one of the biggest bands in the world. And what's the future of that band? Well, listen to the interview and you'll hear <laughs> that Brian basically wants no part of that question when I ask him. But that being said, there's a tremendous amount of great content and stories in here. And I really appreciate him doing this. And, you know, when I had Brian on that metal show or I've done radio stuff with him, it's always happened the same way. I just reach out to him with a text or a call and he responds, and he always steps up, and I cannot thank him enough for uh, taking the time to do interviews with me over the years. It's obviously a real, real great honor to be able to have the ability to do that. And I reached out to him. I heard from the publicist for his book, and we arranged this, and th what you're about to hear is completely over an hour straight of him and I just talking, mostly him, as it should be, uh, just telling us all sorts of great stuff about his history, his upbringing. Now, in full disclosure, I did not have a chance to listen, uh, read, I should say, read the book prior to doing the interview. This all happened very last minute. But I did skim through the book, and I do have it sitting right here now, and I look forward to reading it in its entirety at some point in the near future. So, Brian Johnson this week, what else can I say? What a way to start off the new year on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. And of course, if you are a listener of the radio show, then you probably already heard this, or maybe you are a SiriusXM subscriber. You've since checked it out on the app. But for everybody else, another shot and another opportunity to hear it around the world as the, uh, as the podcast this week. Always remember, follow me on social media for info and updates at Eddie Trunk, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook page. EddieTrunk.com is the website. Again, Trunk Nation, Monday through Friday, 3 to 5 Eastern, Faction Talk 103 on Sirius XM, 
Mondays, 5 to 8 Eastern, live on Hair Nation, Sirius XM Channel 39, and of course, my weekly terrestrial music radio show as well on syndicated radio stations. So a lot of ways to connect with me. Keep an eye on the social media, again, for info and updates on everything going on. And uh, two appearances this month in January. I will be hosting Rock Island, year number two. Uh, That happens in Key West, Florida, kicking off on the 17th with the pre-party there in uh, 17th of January in Key West and running for five nights altogether. So if you're attending, I will see you in Key West really in uh, a little over a week. Looking forward to that greatly. And then coming up in Agora Hills, California, just outside of Los Angeles, I will once again be hosting the Heavy Metal Hall of Fame ceremony. And that'll be happening on January 26th, Twisted Sister and Lou Graham. I know Lou, not necessarily a metal artist, but certainly a rock artist. And I only host the thing, folks. I don't pick the acts, but um, I'm looking forward to it. It's always a great, uh, a great time. There's a charitable component to it as well. And it'll be happening at the Canyon Club in Agora Hills. If you're in that area, hope to see you for the next Heavy Metal Hall of Fame induction on January 26th. Again, keep an eye on my social media for info and updates on all fronts. Lots of good stuff going on. Lots of good stuff coming up. Good chance I'm going to be in Houston on Super Bowl weekend for some stuff. As soon as I have confirmation there, I'll tell you on social media and, of course, here on the podcast and, of course, on the radio show when it's all locked down. All right. Well, there's enough for me here at the top. Let's get to Brian Johnson for over an hour again. Can't think of a better way to kick off another year of the Eddie Trunk podcast than with the lead singer of ACDC. Enjoy. Hello, Eddie Mason. Brian, how are you, man? It's been too long. How's it going? Ah, no. Well, shit's happened and and everything's just tickety-frickin'-boo. <laughs> well, it's great to hear your voice, and uh, I'm glad you. I'm glad you're well. And congratulations on the book, man. I am. Uh, I must be honest oh. with you. They only told me we were doing this like two days ago, and I haven't received the book yet, so I haven't had a chance to read it. So I know after we're done talking, I'm going to read the book, and I'm going to want to talk to you all over again. But I'll do my best. That's <laughs> all right, me bunny lad. I know, but uh, you know, we're just. Uh just been rather amazed and surprised at the wonderful reviews and you know I'm just I'm very very uh, happy you know and uh, it's you know good time I'm, you know the the thing is there's, there's a memoir comes out every week by some old fart actor <laughs> or rock singer or some fucker so you know it's uh, it's just another one really well, okay. l- well let me ask you let me ask you this Brian we'll start here then why did you decide to write the book when did the idea first come to you and how long were you working on it um well the idea first came was when other people were saying Brian you've got to write these fucking excuse me you've got to write these stories down uh you know you can curse by the way if you want to curse no problem you can curse I said, you know, and I just said, well, I didn't you know, you know, one of the guys said, just write it down. So I just got a kind of a legal pad and a pen, and, and I just started writing, and, and, I, and I couldn't stop, you know, because uh, I wrote the whole thing by hand, um, and I couldn't stop. And, and, and I was finding out things that I'd, I'd forgotten, kind of, until I started writing, and, oh, wait a minute, and I, 
And the lucky thing for me is in my life, uh, my friends from school, my first musician friends, my friends from work, and, you know, still my friends. Uh, even though one George wanted to be a bus driver all his life, and he was. We still have a beer and we sit and chat. And it's good, you know, and I'm proud of that. And I wanted to validate their lives, not just mine, by saying, you know, if you surround yourself by good guys, or guys that'll help you and talk to you and just say, you should do that. You know, you're a good singer or something like that. And that's important. Uh, but I also wanted it to maybe inspire people, you know, just to say, you know, hey, listen, I wanted to be a singer. You know, I was a singer in a choir and then in a scout gang show. And I was always asked to be lead singer. And I thought, well, I was. And, uh, and then when I went, I remember I was singing to myself one day and my father came and he said, Boy, you, you like the sound of your own voice, don't you? <laughs> and I said, well, uh, you know, Dad, I just, I just want to be a singer, you know. And he said, you, a singer? He said, Johnny Cash is a singer, and you're not Johnny Cash, son. And I went, oh, good. And so that was me pep talk from me, Dad. And, and then when I was at work, everybody was starting bands. He got him, it was 1963. Bands were popping up everywhere. And out of a school of apprentices of about 60 kids, there was about six bands started up. Everybody went out and bought a guitar or a kit of drums. I couldn't afford either. You know, I couldn't afford any of that kind of stuff. You know, living in a project in um, in a mining village, you know, there was four kids, you know, not that. And um, my wages were tiny. And uh, so, you know, my father bought me a little amplifier, 10 watts, and, and, uh, which I had to pay him back. And uh, and we started a band, and we were useless. I mean, honestly, it was awful. <laughs> and, but even the name, we were called Section 5, and there was only four of us. So, <laughs> you know, honestly, I'm not kidding. It was just dumb. And uh, so, you know, we did our first gig and all of that. And, hey, it wasn't half bad, Eddie. You know, it was, um, it goes into it in the book. You know, the uh, in Walker, we had to take all our equipment on, on a double-decker bus. You know, we didn't have any transport. Nobody had a driving license, and I don't think. And, uh, and it was it was just adventures. And what's happening is, what you don't realize at the time is, you're, you're serving your apprenticeship for things to come. And I wanted to inspire people because if I can do it, I mean, I wanted to be a singer in a band. And of course, I realized that, you know, I wasn't, that I didn't look like a rock singer. So I knew I had to try harder and I had to try harder than anybody else. And I was just determined to do it, you know, um, when the better bands in Newcastle came to me and said, hey, you've got some good pipes there, you come on, and join the band. And then they saw the size of me per year, they just went, oh, I'm sorry, mate, you, kinda, you, you, you need 100 watt per year. And they were about 200 pounds. I couldn't believe it. I said, I cannot afford that. And then later that week, a friend of mine, Jimmy Shane, come running in. He said, Brian, I'm going to join the parachute regiment. 
because you get a 200-pound bounty. I said, really? So, you know, it was like the National Guard Parachute Regiment. Mm -hmm. So I signed up and thinking, well, I'm not really going to jump out of airplanes, you know, it's just the National Guard. Boy, was I wrong. And uh, the next thing I knew, I was sitting in a net on a plane, taking off to do my first jump. <laughs> <laughs> this is all to get the money to get a, P- a proper PA. Uh, yeah. And I'm sitting there, and, uh, and, and a guy's going, stand up. You know, and he moves it to stand up, and I'm going, oh, Christ, who up? And I'm going, think of John Lennon, Paul McCartney, Mick Jagger, all doing in <laughs> London. Parties and getting high, I said, but they're not as high as friggin' me. <laughs> and uh, and it was, it was a leap theatre, really was. Back when I say that, it really was. And you know, I got to the door, looked down, and went, "Oh, good." And I just jumped. Wow! Uh, like most of the things I do in life. And then going to that first gig in the Moor in Belgium. It's my first gig after Back in Black. Um, you know, we'd rehearsed for a couple of weeks, trying to learn all the old songs. That, you know, and then, you, you know, walking towards the, in, in the dark behind and seeing the light and, and through the door on the, the curtain onto the stage. And I was walking towards it, you know, knowing that all the fans were waiting to see what this guy was all about about this new guy, you know, and walking through the same doors, the airplane, it basically was without a parachute. And uh, and that's basically where it ends. You, you know, and, and it's that story about, the whole book is the story about how I got there. You know, a lot of people think this 32-year-old guy just appeared. Where, where, where did he come from? You know, uh, and there he was. And uh, with this album and all that. But it wasn't, you got to serve your apprenticeship. You know, the days in Geordie, when we had two or three, four, I can't remember, top ten hits, you know, in Europe and all of that. Um, and we, uh, you were learning all the time. And then after that fizzled out, and we were all ripped off, of course, I was looking at the job section in the back of the newspaper because I had to feed the family and pay me rent. So it's it's just it, what it is, you know, the lives of Brian. I was somebody different every couple of years, you know. And uh, and I, to try to put it into one book was kind of difficult because it, it would be twice as thick if I if I put everything in. And and I just wanted it to be an easy read. And it's, you know, a lot of people have, just enjoyed it because it's easy to read, first of all. And uh, there's not too much about the music business in it all. You know, well, different things. You know, there's, there's just lovely stories about the musicians that I met on me way up. And it's like the story of Torquay on a freezing night in England. And Geordie would drove to get Torquay Town Hall and there was a band already on the stage, and they were called Fang. And um, and we rushed in because they were halfway through their set. And at the end, all I know is we sat down, me and the singer of Fang, 
had a few pints, swore undying friendship, and never saw each other again. That was Bon Scott. Wow. Wow, and, that is amazing. What was that band he, like, Brian? Brian, what was that band like, Fang, that you saw that uh, night? Well, it was, if you could think of Jethro Tully kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Bon, I remember being very impressed uh, with him. He playing flutes, bassoons. He was a great wind player, you know, flutes and stuff like that. And, um, you know, I didn't realize, you know, I only found out because of his brother, Derek, who I'm still in touch with to this day. He said, you know, he came back and said to the boys, there's only one one rock singer that I saw in England that could any mustard with me. And he was a kid called Brian Johnson with Geordie Band. And he, and, Derek said, he really, he fucking raved about you a few times, you know, and I said, well, that was real nice of him. And he said, oh, yeah. So, And I think the boys didn't forget that, you know, and Mutt Langer was also a bit of a fan of me voice. So when the two, you know, met, you know, when the two thought, the, the lads were going, you know, yes, we've got to give this guy a shot. But I was under the radar then, Eddie. You know, I was up at Newcastle playing in the working men's clubs, you know, uh, had my own little company, little business. I mean, I wasn't making a fortune, but I was comfortably off. But I was living at home with my mother and father. Me and my wife had split up, and it felt at 32, like, I went, mm, well, you know, I'm back in the old bedroom I was in when I was, you know, a kid. It, those things can kick in the teeth, you know, as you're getting older. Sure. Um, and uh, so... Uh, you know, uh, to, to go from there, you know, and then suddenly you're in London and, you know, and you're one of these people that's been auditioned. I mean, I was only down there to do a, a Hoover advert, but I thought, well, I might as well pop round, you know. And uh, and when I walked in, I remember, you know, the boys were sitting in, in their chairs with their guitars on and sitting in front of their speakers, you know, uh, this is studio. when they called you for an audition, Brian? Yeah. Okay. And, uh, you know, uh, 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 the, the one smiley, uh, you know, Amalgam, you know, uh, ran over and said, you know, here, Brian, you drink this up in Newcastle, don't you? And it was Newcastle Brownell. And I went, oh, I could kill that. I could kill that, man. And I just drank it. And he said, what do you want to sing? And I think I told you this before. I just said, Nutbush City Limits by Tina Turner. Can you do that? And he went, what? He said, well, at least it's not fucking smoke on the water <laughs> again. And, uh, <laughs> so, uh, and he started playing it. And I was watching it, And the other boys. And then I went, okay. And then I got up and running. Uh, but, you know, the thing is, when I walked in that door and I wondered why they weren't, you know, jolly and happy. Of course, the whole reason was every new face that walked in there wasn't Bon. It was just another reminder that Bon wasn't coming back. Mm. So I understand, you know. Um, and when they started off with a Nutbush City Limits, I remember just sitting there going, I've never heard it anything this good in my life. I mean, it was just on a different level from anything I'd ever heard. It was just 
so good. Um, Did you know Highway to Hell, Brian? Were you a fan of the previous records? Did you know? Did you know Highway to Hell and all of that? Yep, but but uh, uh, one of the guys in the band had the album, Uh, and we we did uh, a whole lot of Rosie. It was we'd finish the night with it uh, in the social clubs, and everybody went nuts for that song. I mean, mm. just nuts. And we usually have to play it twice. And so I said, the, the next song, I said, well, I can do Rosie. And they went, oh, brilliant. And so they, they played Rosie. And, went, and you could tell there was something in the air. You know, they were looking at each other, you know, and we just going, ooh, what's this? And um, and it was funny because at the end, I said, right, lads, thanks very much. I said, well, I tell the boys up north that I had a, I sang a couple of songs with you. I said, it'd be great. I said, but uh, I've got to get home. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, I've got a six-hour drive in. I've got to get home. You can't, you can't go home. I said, well, sure. I said, I'm not going to open the show. I said, I've got a gig tomorrow night. What? And uh, it was funny, and I said, but thanks anyway, lads. See ya. And I walked <laughs> out doing the stairs, and then... The road manager come running up. He said, what, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> I said, I'm going home. He said, you can fucking, fucking, you can fucking. I said, I can't, man. I've got a gig. <laughs> you know. And I said, well, give your number again. I said, fuck. So, um, I gave me number and uh, the rang is the very next day, you know. Um, Peter Mensch, the manager. And he said, you have to come down. And can you come down Monday? And I said, I think so. I think I can make it, man. And uh, I did do. And they put us up in a hotel. And we were just, you know, trying a few things out. And, um, you know, and it just seemed right now. But I still didn't believe I would get the job. I still believed that, uh, you know, an Australian would get it or one of the established names in the business and uh, you know it was just magical when I got a call from Malcolm it was Malcolm who rang me and asked me if I wanted to go to the Bahamas to do an album and I remember saying where's the Bahamas <laughs> and uh, I said uh, you know I said I said are you kidding me and he went no I said I thought you already had another singer this Australian guy he went nah that's bullshit mate I said, would you phone me back in 10 minutes just in case just, this is just a hoax or something? <laughs> and he said, yeah, all right, in 10 minutes. And he did. And that was it. He, he just said, yeah, you come in? And I said, fuck yeah. I said, are you asking me to be part of it? And he said, yeah. I went, holy fuck. And... And that was it. And the horrible thing was, it was my dad's birthday, but my mother and father were out. There was nobody there. And I bought my dad a bottle of whiskey for his birthday present. And I didn't know what to do. I was going, what What just happened to me? And I was all alone. So I opened the whiskey, didn't I, Eddie? And I, I, I was having a couple of goats of whiskey, and, and my mom and dad came in. And I said, Dad, Dad, I said, there's your birthday present. And he looked at us and he went, did you eat the cake as well? I went, oh, sorry, mate. <laughs> and uh, I said, I've just been asked to join DCDC. And he went, uh, whatever. 
He'd never <laughs> heard of them, you know. Ma, Ma, I've just been asked to join the SCDC. Oh, that's very nice, son. Would you like a cup of tea? <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and I was it. The next thing I knew, I was in the back of a plane with the boys, you know, smoking cigarettes and drinking beer for seven hours or something, seven eight hours. And then landing in the Bahamas where it was ninety four fucking degrees, and I had nothing on but jeans, a denim bomber jacket, a hat, fat hat, and a plastic bag with two t shirts and two sets of underpants and a couple of pairs of socks. Uh, that was me. And, and you, you say in the, now, now I did get a chance to skim through the book, and there, there's so much hitting in my mind that I, I, I don't know how much time yet, but there's so much hitting in my mind I want to ask you about. But just because for those that don't know, your book ends with Back in Black. So it's really the beginning of your life until you join ACDC. And to, set, to set the whole uh, stage, which I thought was fantastic, to show your history prior to joining ACDC, the book opens with basically like a tree of all the different bands that you've been in that everything connects, which is amazing. So yes. putting that there, was that just to show people right in the first pages, hey, this it, is the story in print of the journey to get to ACDC? Yeah. And you know who did that? Darren Goulden did that, one of our super fans. And he did this research and sent it to me and, I was stunned. And I said, you have to. I said, do you mind if I ask the publishers to put this in the book? And he said, well, he said, I've got a, I've got a, uh, you know, he said, that, that, that would be my biggest honor. And, uh, and he was just absolutely thrilled. And I think it's fantastic the way he's done it. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Yeah, it is. I had no idea about all that. That's uh, that shows really before you even read the first page. The, the the for like you said, people that just think this guy dropped out of nowhere and joined ACDC. Uh, it shows the journey of your life. Yeah, I, I know it's it's pretty it's it's pretty spectacular. That I must admit, I don't think I've ever seen that before in any kind of book. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And Brian, I'm, I'm curious, going all the way back to when you first started speaking, you, you mentioned about your dad and he said, well, you're not a singer. Johnny Cash is a singer. But then you said yeah. he still bought you uh, a, a, a small PA or an amplifier of some sort. Yeah. So do, when, when your dad told you that, did that inspire you even more? And were your parents generally supportive of you chasing oh, this dream? I yeah, absolutely, me son. Absolutely, they were always there for us. And uh, me dad was a gruff-spoken man, but he was kind. He was kind-hearted, uh, you know. And when we went to get it, well, you know, I had to put a deposit on it, and he had to sign for the for the agreement. And the repayments were ten shillings and sixpence a week, which was one third of my wage. Uh, as an apprentice, and, and it was quite fucking daunting. It was, uh, you know, and I, I got a little microphone with it. And the sad thing was, there was only four feet of lead on the mic, so I, I couldn't move. <laughs> I had to stand dead still, <laughs> otherwise it was a, the jack plug would come out. But you know, it was me first. But I was so proud. 
But I mean, when you look at it now, it's about the size of a computer bag. Right. You know. Right. It, 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 I mean, it was ten watts. I mean, it's, I mean, a, a, a car radio is more than that now. Yeah. You know, but it was mine, and I was so happy. I wish I had it now. God, it, I wish I had it. But uh, I think I put it up uh, to help us buy the, the the new big one. You know. You know, I'm curious. I'm I'm curious too about Jordy because that was the band prior to ACDC, and once you joined ACDC, then people started digging into your history here in America and realized you had this band before called Jordy. You mentioned that Jordy had some hits in Europe. Why do you think the band never got on the radar here in America and didn't have success here? I, you know, I don't know Eddie, but it, the same happened to Slade. Yes. And they really attacked America. They came over here under banner headlines, you know, the biggest hit makers in the world. And the world. Status know, quo, too. Status quo, too, yeah. Brian. Status quo, That's I know, is right. big there. Nothing here. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. And, you know, and there in the book, there's a chapter on them about status quo. And, uh, you know, it was. Um, it was just one of them strange things that just didn't work, you know. And then along came Zeppelin, you know, uh, and just, you know, well, they were there before, said, and it was just, I don't know, it's the strangest thing. But it didn't work for the Americans. And was that, did, was that uh, frustrating for you and the band? Did you guys come over here ever and tour and play gigs? No, never came to America, ever. And the first time I ever came to America was at Syracuse when I came in with ACDC and we'd been to Canada for two days uh, and we supported ZZ Top at a festival. And then we got in the bus and we drove across the border uh, into Syracuse and we checked into the Holiday Inn. What were that your impre- what were your initial impressions of America when you first came here? Did you like it? Oh, I loved it. Uh, yeah, the only thing I didn't like was uh, uh, when I went for breakfast and this woman put some grit on me plate. What the <laughs> fuck is that? Your name's Grit. I went, okay, then I'll give it a shot. Whoa, didn't like it. I didn't like the grit, but the rest was brilliant. You know, a steak with eggs on, that was unheard of in England. <laughs> you know you know what else I, I realized reading the book, which I didn't know until, well, I didn't get a chance to read it, but I skimmed through it. I can't wait to read every word of it, and I plan to do it. Oh. But, but I, I, I can't wait, because you're right, I just got a few pages in, because I literally just got it, and I'm like, my gosh, this is such an easy read, and, I, and knowing you and knowing your voice, and, and, and uh, I just know it's going to yep. be a fun read. But, you know, this, I didn't realize this, so... Uh, your mom is Italian, right? Yes. yes. Because it re- it reminded me of something, and I don't know if you remember this, but years ago, uh, you came to my radio show and in New York, and you had gone to uh, a dinner in Staten Island and had this amazing Italian meal that you appreciated so much that you called into my show the next day to thank those people for the meal. This is like 20 years ago. And oh right, right, right! Of course, and it was in was it Queens, Staten Island, like Staten Island, Staten Island. That was it. We had to get the ferry. That's right. Yes. Uh, 
Yeah, we had done a TV and, uh, interview, and I said, when you called and you, you raved about this Italian food, uh, and I'm half Italian myself, my mom is as well, and yeah. I said to myself, wow, Brian really has an appreciation of Italian food. Now I understand yeah. why. <laughs> yeah, I, I, no, I mean, uh, uh, that, well, Dominic was the old pizza chef here in Sarasota, and he said, if you ever go to New York, would you visit my family? And I said, yeah, they're thinking I may never get the chance. And I had a day off, me and Brenda, so we just got on the ferry and went along. We told them we were coming. And we walked into this, just, you know, like a strip mall type thing. And his mother come out and, oh, it's so glad to meet you. And all the family, nephews, nieces, there was fucking 30 of them there. And they sat me and Brenda down and these plates of food were bloody up. I said, oh, well, it's... 30 people here, but no, no, they just sat and watched her. I said, come on, eat. And I went, no, 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 we've eaten, this is for you. And I went, I can't eat, we can't eat this. I said, no, there was like four pizzas on the table. <laughs> you know, there was pastas, there was, oh, it was ridiculous. Trust me, I know, I know how it is. I grew up in that household. That It explains why I'm the size that I am, Brian, because it was always just eat, eat. You know, you're a growing boy, just eat. Trust me, I know, I get it completely. No, it was, it was, I got to tell you, it, but it was memorable. You know, I couldn't fucking move that night. <laughs> I, 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 I had to go back to the hotel and I just sat there. I couldn't lie down. It, it hurt too much. <laughs> I was sitting there and then one of the lads said, right, uh, we're going to go to dinner. The record company. I said, what? I said, you must be joking. I said, I'll be good for the next two couple of days. <laughs> hey, I want to ask you about when, you know, for me, my, my whole life has been in rock music, but in a different end of it, yes. obviously doing what I do, right? So for you, yep. and I remember distinctly as a little kid, the first time I got bit by the rock and roll bug, the first song I heard that really set me on that path. Yes. For you as a musician... Was there a moment, and I don't know if you write about this in the book, but was there a moment where you, as a little kid, the first proper rock and roll that you heard, a song, a moment, where you said, that's what I want to do? Absolutely. It happened uh, one day. I was about 10 or 11. And uh, I was, I'd just been to the dentist, so I had to miss school, and I went home, and I was sitting there, and in those days, uh, it was black and white, it was uh, BBC, which was on the air for two hours in the afternoon from 12 till 2, and then didn't come back on again till 5 o'clock. Uh, and I remember sitting there, and the woman said, and now for the interlude. Now, the interlude usually meant watching a, a, a potter making a, a, making a vase or making a bowl or some fish swimming up. So it was awful stuff. And said, today we have something quite different. We have a young man from America uh, who will sing his latest pop song, and he's called Little Richard. Oh. It cut away to this handsome young black man with just glittering eyes. I'm sure he had makeup on, but I didn't. I was a kid. A mustache, uh, you know, a 
beautiful sequin jacket, a shiny jacket. I can't remember what the hell it was. It just, and a thin tie. And just a smile. And he just went, What the? I mean, when you said you fell off the chair, I fell off the side of the chair I was sitting on. I, I, I had to get past them and look. And I never wanted it to end. But of course, then pop songs would have been two and a half minutes long or three minutes, you know. To, and we didn't even have a record player. And if we did, we couldn't afford a record anyway. You know, we were pretty pretty down there in the cash sticks. And it was, uh, it was, uh, it was just changed my life. I said, oh, God, that was fabulous. And, um, and it was a day later, I was coming home from school and I heard the record coming out of this house. And I thought, what? And I've done something I never did before. When I knocked on the door and this woman came out, she was probably 19, but to me, she was a woman. And, uh, and she said, what do you want? I said, please, could you play that record again, please? Mm. And she said, I said, who is it? And she went, it's little Richard. I went, I thought it was. I saw it on the t- I said, please, can I hear it again? She went, oh, you cheeky little bugger. She said, go on, go over to the window. So I went to her front window and she opened it and put the record on again. Then she came to the front door and started doing the hand jive and taught me how to do the hand jive. And, and I went up and I said, thank you. She said, I'm, she said, my name's Annette. I said, thank you, Annette. And I never saw it again, Annette. Uh, but uh, I'll never forget that either. You know, listening to actually somebody's record player and, and she could put it on any time she liked. So then my next job was to get a record player. <laughs> right, yeah, no doubt. And you saw, I know this is written about in the book, uh, you saw Hendrix? You you had a, You saw Hendrix when you were very young. Was that one of the yeah, first shows you saw? Young, well, I... I snuck in to the go-go club. And, you know, there's not many people got different memories of seeing him. I was talking to one, one of my buddies who was there, and he said, I can't remember that happening. And I said, ah, well, that's what happened. You know, I saw him. Did he not put his guitar through the roof? He said, no, his guitar was up there, but you couldn't see him for all the people in there. It was packed. And I was little, and I, and I hadn't paid. I'd snuck in under the turnstile under the thing, and uh, I was worried I would get caught. So I didn't really say much of anything. I, I, I just saw his head and, he, you know, and the bits of tassels he had. And it was it was like a dream, really, you know, that. And, the, and it was just this racket, you know, this noise. Because it was a tiny, small place. And that was the very first gig he did in Britain. Because his manager was Charles Chandler, right. who was the bass player in The Animals, right. who signed them up. So, you know, it was uh, it was uh, fucking a strange, strange thing. That, but anyway, yeah, we did see him in uh, a bit briefly. You yeah, know, and uh, but 
your your yeah, other yeah, your yeah. other as everybody knows beyond rock and roll your other great love is cars and you even did a book about your love of cars i know uh yeah. previously so and and i know that in the book you talk about the significance of wearing your signature driving cap on stage with, with acdc and always having that hat but i don't know the story can you share that with the listeners as to when you started doing that yeah, it was, uh, we were at a place called Lobley Hill Social Club. It's a working men's club. And I had just come straight from work. And I was putting vinyl roofs on cars at the time. And windshields and all of that kind of stuff. And me hands, I didn't even have time to get washed. I came straight from the garage that I was working. And ran straight on stage. I was filthy. And... You know, and my hands were covered in glue and, you know, bits I've tried to rub off, but that stuff doesn't come off that easy. And I remember I, I, I was sweating. It was packed. The club was packed to the rafters and I was sweating. And my brother Morris was there. And he coming in, he said, Jesus, Brian, he said, your eyes are red. I mean, red. And I went, oh, I know, I'm sweating. I'm trying to rub the sweat out of my eyes. But of course, the glue and... Everything was getting in there and, and, and uh, was really stinging. He said, here, put this on. Because he had a sports car, you see. And he said, put this hat on. It will stop, stop the sweat running in your eyes. And I went, okay, I'll give it a shot. And I went on. And there was a cheer I went up. Because in that part of the world, that's what everybody wore back in the day, was these flat caps. That, you, know, you were a working man. And a lot of them still did and I put it on, and there was a bit of a cheer went up, you know, and and, uh, and it worked. It worked perfectly. I, I loved it. Uh, uh, and at the end, uh, you know, we finished. Of course, it was soaking. And I said, I'm out of Smith. And he said, I didn't want that back. He said, yeah, you keep it. He said, it, it, it was absolutely soaking. Wet. And that's how it started. Mm. Through me brother Morris. What what do you remember about your very first gig with ACDC here in America? Because, you know, ACDC in the U.S., as I'm sure you know, they started to make some progress around the time of Highway to Hell with Bond, but it didn't. they yeah. didn't really go over the top and really become a mega band here until Back in Black. So, so what, early on, your first time coming here, what were you guys, were you guys headlining shows? Were you in theaters? Were you supporting? What were you doing? No, it was a it was a mix. I know on Highway to Hell, to, uh, the boys supported a lot of bands, Kiss and people like that. And uh, you know, um, and when the first gig I did on this side of the pond was Canada with ZZ Top, mm -hmm. and and then the next night we I don't think we had anybody supporting us oh yes we did we did that's right i forgot who it was uh but i was not excited to play in america i didn't care what was happening you know i just wanted to see it and i just remembered the american audience being so warm and you know yahoo and it was brilliant i just went bloody hell this is fantastic you know they weren't you know, they weren't too, they weren't conservative in the slightest. They just went conkers, you know. And it was, it was fantastic. And I, and I just warmed to the country. 
Did you, did you, Brian, did you, so, so here in America, I would understand you being immediately accepted because again, the band wasn't that big here prior to you joining, but in other parts of the world, I mean, uh, of course you had nothing to do with Bond passing away. You were a fan. It was not your fault, but we've seen this. I've talked to other singers about this, that there, there's, there is a certain segment of the fan base that there's resistance to anyone new coming in, even if it's the circumstances like someone passing away. Did you run into that in other parts? Parts of the world? Um, I never saw it. I mean, I, the first night we did our very first gig in Belgium, I remember getting through that door, like I said, and seeing all the banners, you know, all the banners there, R.I.P., Bon Arbit. But right in the middle, deliberately placed there, was a double-fisted one with two guys holding it up in the middle. And it just said, welcome, Brian. Oh, that's you know, awesome. And and it just touched us. It gave us so much strength to carry on because, yeah, we know that. And it's uh, it was a special evening. That was, uh, you know, when we came off, I'll never forget in the dressing room and everybody being so happy that it had worked. And, you know, the relief, you could see the weight fall off Malcolm and Angus and Cliff and Phil's shoulders. You know, it just, the weight just gone. Sure. Because we'd done the album, the kids hadn't heard it yet, it hadn't been released. But we played six songs of it. I did not know that until one of the super fans told me, uh, which was very brave, doing new material, right. you know. Yeah, no, no doubt. And you know, you, you told me something once in a past interview that I will never forget about when you, when you made Back in Black. And, and I don't know if I remember this correctly, but I remember you saying something to me, which blew my mind. You had said that after you wrote the lyrics in Back in Black in Compass Point and you wrote, and you recorded the vocals, you told me that you went uh, you went outside the studio, had a cigarette, and started thinking about what your next gig was going to be because you were convinced that they were not going to like the vocals and that you that it wasn't going to be yeah. sellable and it wasn't going to be a commercially viable thing. Of course, the irony of that is Back in Black is one of the biggest selling records of all time. But you, after you recorded it, you didn't think it was going to work, right? Yeah, well, I couldn't hear it, you see. And all I ever heard, because they were in such a hurry to do things, I mean, they really were under pressure for financial reasons, you know, because it was expensive out there. And and, and so Mutt would just go, right, thanks, Brian, we're finished with you now. I want to keep your voice for tomorrow. Next, right, boys, you get in, and we'll start on this next song. And I heard a bit of it back through the headphones that were lying on the floor. And it didn't sound, it sounded tinny bitty because I couldn't hear the music coming up. It was just the, this voice. And I went, oh my God, what the hell is that? <laughs> you know, and of course, it, of course it hadn't been mixed or anything at all. And the right. lead guitar hadn't been put on and, you know, and everything. And so it was just a basic, basic, basic track. And, uh, and I remember having a fucking, um, well, I guess the, the jig is up. He fucking got me. You know, you know, there's no hiding place in that song. There never was. And um, it's, uh, and, and it is, it's funny, it just shows you how much I know. It turned out to be one of the biggest songs 
biggest yeah. albums i mean how does that i mean that's i don't know if there's ever been a case in music history where a a new album a first album with a new singer is not only the band's biggest record but one one of in the tides time the top as you know three or five biggest records in the history of of music i mean that's uh, that's got to feel surreal to you i would think because in all the years <laughs> i've known you you always kind of like you always kind of approach ACDC as like you're keeping the seat warm. I've always found that endearing about you. Like you just, you know, it's always, well, ask Ang and Mal and we'll see. <laughs> like you're along for the ride. But of course, you're a huge part of it. So to know yeah, that well, even now has got to be amazing. Well, thanks for that, Michonne. But, you know, it was always, you know, I was always like that anyway, you know. But I remember, you know, when I first joined, I said, well, they're going to figure out they've made a mistake real soon when we get to the studio. They're going to go, whoa-oh. And, uh, and, and I guess that's why I didn't pack anything. You know, I, I really, I guess in the back of my mind, thought, well, I could be back on a plane in a few days if I, you know. You and, must have stunk, Brian. You must have started to smell after a couple oh, of days. You had no clothes. <laughs> well, it was, and, and uh, there wasn't even a shower in this place. You know, you, there was a hand basin. So uh, I'd go into the sea a few times. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but, you know, but it, it, now it was. You know, looking back now, just as you said, and most people do say, they find it unbelievable that album could be that big. That was done in such a rapid time. I mean, it was so fast. Um, it, 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 when I asked Cliff the other day, I said, now, Cliff, when I was writing the book, I said, now, did I, what time did I go into the studio? Was, was it... I used to go in from 2 till 4, didn't I? You guys used to go in from 11.30 till 2, and then you'd all leave to go back to the house and work on another truck, and then I would go in and sing. Mutt would never let me sing more than two hours with his experience with singers. He wanted a fresh voice the next day, and he would just go, that's it, that's it. I've got more in me. No, no, no. Right. Send the boys back, and I'd come back to the house. I'd say, guys, what's ready for you? And they'd be rehearsed. It was like a smooth machine. And, and I asked Cliff, I said, what, what, what? And Cliff went, Jonah, he said, it was a blur. It was a blur. Yeah. We were just on the move all the time. I think we, I don't even think we had Sunday off the first two weeks. And I think it was. Uh, after three weeks or something, we, we had a night off to go and go to the bar or something. Uh, you know, we had a, a, a cook, a woman there that used to cook for her, dinner at night, breakfast in the morning, and would get some food brought in at lunchtime or whatever it was, but it was just nonstop, nonstop. And uh, it was it was a strange thing, you know, the talking heads were in there, and I hardly knew, you know, there were any of them. And, and Robert Palmer, uh, was, they were just, you know, but I just saw them going in and out. And, and uh, you know, it was, a, it, it was just too fast for me to take in. And of course, when it was over, before I knew where I was, I was on the plane by myself flying back, you know, to England thinking, did that just happen or was that... Mm. I was out dreaming here. Yeah. And of course, I, I, I never got a copy of the album. 
think it was four or five weeks before I got a copy of the last thing. I was thinking maybe the back end doing it again. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> else. Uh, um, and then it came, and I couldn't believe it. And uh, of course, I still didn't have a record player. I was living with my mum and dad then. You know, the marriage had broken up, and uh, it was kind of strange being on me. You had to take it down you to know. the. You had to take it down to the woman that played you Tutti Frutti and let her hear it. Then at that point. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would have been the thing to do. Was, Check out my record. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, yeah, it was it was a it was a uh, it, it was a strange time because I now had done something pretty good, but I wasn't sure. Yeah, well, but no I doubt, no doubt. You, you know, I knew this and I knew that, but I didn't know anything at all. Is the truth. Uh, I just, you know, uh, I went to see the old band and all that, and they were going, right, what happened? And can we get back together again? And I was going, well, <laughs> that's not going to happen. I don't know. And uh, so I went back to me, me little company that I had, and I started working again. Oh, you started you working know? again. You started working a regular job even after Back in Black initially came out. Yeah, but it was, you know, it was my company, my little company, so I went back in. Doing help. what? What were you doing, Bri? I was putting vinyl roofs on. Oh, And wow. windshields in. Okay. I wasn't any biggie. I, it, it filled me time. I had nothing else to do. Right. So, uh, you know, and um, and uh, Ken Walker, who'd been looking after it for me, my partner, uh, I just said, come on in, Ken. I'll, I'll, he said, oh, good. He said, you've been missed. I said, oh, Kevin, let's go. It wasn't, it wasn't anything. It was just, it kept me mind busy, you know, doing stuff, and I like that. I, I won't, Brian, I won't keep you too much longer. I appreciate all this time. There's so much I love to ask you about, and I love to talk to you, and, and uh, you're one of my favorite people to talk to. So just a couple more things from you. The book opens, the ve the beginning of the book, now it ends around the time we're talking about you joining yeah. uh, and, and doing Back in Black, but the very first few pages of the book, when I started reading it uh, earlier yesterday, talk about the most recent stuff, which is, of course, your hearing issues and your hearing loss and what you went through. And I yeah. found it very interesting because... Uh, correct. I mean, it ends with them saying they've got to take a chisel and take crystals out of your head, which is yeah. just. I, but but in a nutshell, if you can tell the audience, um, and they'll get the book and they'll read the whole story in the book. But it, did do I have this right? It sounded almost like because of the conditions and the flying, did did the whole thing yeah. start because of a a virus or an illness or an infection? Yeah. It was an infection. I mean, first of all, that we played in Winnipeg, and uh, it was bloody freezing at the stadium, open stadium. And I remember Angus that night had a dreadful fever. <laughs> How he got through that, I don't know. And, of course, we wear T-shirts. You know, like in the book says, you know, the Canadians were dressed in you know, and, and this stuff that repels polar bear attacks. <laughs> I mean, just great big jackets and, you know, against the cold and hats and everything. And us, like, you know, we are us, you know. And, uh, and Angus has gone down the front of the stage, me and all of this. And 
it, but there was no doubt about it. It was freezing cold, and we got straight on the plane and flew to Vancouver. And but when I landed, you know, I got I was trying to pop my ears, and it wouldn't pop. And, and I was a bit worried. The next morning, and it was really deaf. I couldn't hear a thing. And I was kind of, this is scary. And then the next, we played Vancouver the next night. And I couldn't hear the guitars. You know, the tune, I could hear them, but they were break, they were going. And so I was singing off memory. It was bloody awful. And then we had San Francisco, and then we had LA, and then we had uh, about three weeks off before we went to Australia. And I thought, oh, well, that's all I'll need. I'll, I'll, I'll just. But nothing happened. And. So I decided to fly to Australia uh, early and see this pretty famous doctor. Chin. Hey, Brian, real, let me jump in real quick there. Were you feeling like, was it the same feeling you would have like if you went swimming and you had water in your head and you, you're trying to hit yeah. it out and it wouldn't come out? Yeah, that's exactly it. And, and it's horrible. You can hear your teeth, you know, you can hear everything inside your head. It's right. just awful. And uh, this guy looked and he went, whoops, it is. He, uh, he said, listen, what, what's happened is you got on that flight, you know, the, 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 the I don't know what, phlegm or something, but the liquids up there went up and the stayed there. And it's kind of hardened, you know, and it's got to come out. And I mean now. And so I went, oh, Christ. And, uh, and I was I was under the I was under the operating table before I knew it, and, and uh, you know he, he was a good lad. He was trying to make light of well, I've chiselled away that stuff that he said. But he, at the end of the day, he did say, "Hey, listen, I've got some good news and some bad news." He said, "We've saved the right. Uh, yeah, you've got about forty-five percent left there, but lefty has gone completely. I'm sorry, that's where it is." He said, "But." If you don't fly on the day of gigs, I believe you can. You, you know, you, you'll be good with your right ear, but you just really got to be careful. And I went, "Oh, that's marvelous!" Um, so, so, so half half in one ear and no hearing in the other. So you were, you only had half ear. Your total hearing yeah. at that point was half in one ear. Yeah, and of course. That's where you put the in here. So, and what happened was, it, it, it just, it's awful. You know, you become, uh, when you're talking with people at the restaurant or dinner table, uh, things like that, you just can't hear them. And you become the nodding dog at the end of the table, you know. It, it, and I like to talk to people. I like to converse. I'm not weird. It was just bloody awful and it was lonely in a way because you, you, you couldn't hear what was going on and uh, and I thought then this this could be bad and, uh, and of course it was you know and well, I'll know the story that you, you know well, I came back to see the doctors yeah and they just said you got stopped now and I mean that's the end of it if you don't I'm taking no responsibility whatsoever but thankfully a man called Stephen Ambrose came along uh, with his new invention, and 
I said, well, come down to the house. So he came all the way from Denver. And he came into the house with this thing. It looked like a bloody car battery. I went, what's this? And he went, and he brought these new hearing pieces and they were inflatable. And I said, what is it? And he said, basically, it's a prosthetic eardrum. I'd never heard anything like it. And he, he inflated them. You know, I put them in my ear and inflated them. And, I went, uh, and, I, and there was a tear came straight out of my I could hear everything perfectly. Now the problem was we had to work together closely for two years to miniaturize it and improve it. And he was doing it all the time and he kept flying down, God bless him, until finally uh, it was perfect. And, you know, we got together two and a bit years ago after we did power up, we went to Holland to do the video, but then we said, you know, Angus is going, well, you fancy some rehearsals? And now we went, yeah, come on, I've got to try these years with the band live. And we did. And uh, Stephen flew over and got the things ready. And, uh, and that first day in that rehearsal studio, we rehearsed 15 days, nonstop, every day. And Angus went, fucking hell, he said, Brilliant. Cliff started to use them after that. Then Stevie started to use them. Uh, they're just, and then of course the crowning glory was a few couple of months ago when I was in London and Debbie Grohl asked us to come up on stage and sing. Right. I was going to ask you about that because I want to ask you about that in a second, but just going back to you playing live in a studio with ACDC, was that just for you to get a feel on how that would work or was the intent to do no, no, that, that, to go out just, on the road? No, that was me naturally as because you wear headphones when you're recording. But you said you rehearsed and you played live with the band for 15 days around the time of Power Up. Was that with the intention of going no. out or no? <laughs> Now, hang on, you, you made get mixed up there. We did power up, then we went to do the video right. in in Holland. Right. When we finished shooting the video, we said, well, well, let's rehearse and try the ears out. Right. Which we did do in a big sound studio, and we, would, we were there for three weeks, and then we just knew it was right, and everything was working. So we were just, we were just as... Happy as happy as Larry, and of course, um, the, the you know we were talking about what kind of gigs we we're gonna do and all this kind of stuff. And then the tour manager came over and he said, "Hey, listen, boys, there's a bit of a Chinese flu going around, uh, so why don't you all go home for three or four weeks and we'll meet up again in London?" <laughs> Two and a half years later, right when. Ang and Phil were finally released from prison in New Zealand in Australia. You know, um, it was uh, it was it, it was a it was a bugger because we were ready. The, you know, the band were hot. I mean, real hot. And uh, yeah, well, that's what happens. You know, that's uh, the old pandemic every century. Well, I was catch it. Yeah, well, well, you, you, so we, we saw you fi sing live w at the Taylor Hawkins tribute, 
And uh, yeah. so many people were so thrilled to see you out there and doing a couple songs. And Lars was back there playing drums. It was fantastic. <laughs> There's something about that show, though, that I've got to ask you about because the poor guy got beat up about it, as I'm sure you know. But during one of the songs, you wave for Justin Hawkins from the darkness to come out and sing a verse with you. And I don't yeah. know if you know this, but a lot of fans were like, what the fuck was he doing? You can't take a microphone away from Brian Johnson. But you waved him well, out. Can you explain that? Uh, sure. Uh, uh, we're getting ready to go on. And, you know, Justin came over. He's going, oh, man. Brian, he said, I can't believe I'm here. He said, I said, Back in Black's my favorite of all, all songs in the world. I'd love to be able to sing. But I said, Come on and sing the second verse. Can you do that? He went, Oh, do you mean it? And he turned Dave Crow as he said, Dave, Brian's just asked us to sing the second verse of Back and Black. I said, Okay. And Dave Crow said, He said, If Brian Johnson asks you to sing the second verse of Back and Black, you sing it. <laughs> and he did. And then he got on, and I think he, he chickened out off with food. Yes. And I forgot the fucking words. But well, the, the worst thing was he got so excited he came out and he forgot to bring a microphone with him. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why it looked so awkward trying to sing with one microphone, you know, and he's like six foot fucking two or something. <laughs> Well, it was a lot of fun, and it was great to see you up there, and it was nice to know that you could still do it, and you sounded great and all of that. And, you know, uh, th th that that begs the, 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 you know, in closing out here, the biggest question the world wants to know, Brian, that I'm asked which constantly, will I you ever play answer. live again? I'm not answering that. You can't answer that? No. Why should I? Uh, <laughs> first of all, there's five members in this band. And to ask one member isn't fair. Well, you wanted to a couple of years ago. So w would you per let me let me ask you it this way. Would you, can you w with no. your ears and everything <laughs> with your ears and everything Eddie, that you've gone Eddie, through? Can you I do it? I can't answer that. You can't Eddie, answer. I can't answer that. I've been told not to. Okay. Everybody. All right. All right. I don't. I'm not going to. It's the official line that you can't answer it. What about a record? Would you like to do a follow up to Power Up? Can you answer that? Oh, it's getting, it's getting, it's getting, it's getting tabloidy here. Okay, Eddie, you're getting tabloidy. I, I wasn't tabloidy. told. I wasn't told I couldn't ask this. I'm sorry. I, I was not told. No, 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 no. You know we don't like that kind of stuff, Eddie. Okay. You know, uh, I, I didn't know. That. You know what it's like. You know what it's like now. The social media and all of that. If I say one thing. It'll be blown out of all proportion. So you just can't afford to talk now. Uh, it's a too bad that. Uh, okay, so you, oh, you oh. can't afford to talk. It's too. There's too much blabber on the on, on the internet, and I'm not on any kind of face thing or social media at all. Never have been. It's a. It's just gossip, you know. Okay, so, so I'll ask I you about something you, that Eddie, did. I knew, ask... you, I knew you. I knew you'd do that. You well, nobody told me I couldn't, though. Nobody told me I couldn't. Eddie says it's your fault, Pete. Let, Brian, let me ask you then about something that did happen. Uh, your thoughts about Power Up? Because I didn't talk to you since Power Up came out. The fans loved it. Did you enjoy making the record? And do you, you know, how do you feel about the it's record? Brilliant. 
It was brilliant. <laughs> but at the time of our life. Are you kidding me? I, I, I think it was one of the best albums that we've done. And I still, I've, I've got it in my car. I still play it all the time. But, you know, it's, it's, it was just fantastic. But the thing is, I've got to tell you, uh, we noticed one thing when we were in there. There was a presence, you know, and even everybody admitted it. And, and, it that, uh, you know, the good, good King Malcolm was floating boots somewhere. He, because you give everybody a kick up the arse and boy, oh boy, we went for it uh, in that studio. I mean, we went for it 100%. And uh, I, I think it showed at the end. It was, I, I, I love that album. Yeah, and the fans loved it. I mean, it's a, it, it's a tremendous record and uh, uh, we all hope that God it's... bless the fans. I'll tell you, they're the best in the flipping world. Do, do you and that's the last thing I want to ask you about ACDC fans and I'll let you go on this it is amazing to me the fan base that you guys have the passion you have as you mentioned a second ago there's things you can't even talk about because of the rabid nature of the fans and how they'll run with the slightest little thing but do yeah. you know where do you think that connection with ACDC and the fans and you particularly you you know uh, you, as I mentioned when people read your book everything you've got through in your life to get to the point of joining ACDC, which is what the book is about. You always yeah. still, Brian, you always still had this thing where like, hey, I'm just happy to be here. You never came off as the prototypical frontman rock star larger than life. There's a relatability. Yeah. Do you do you feel that that's one of the secrets to the ACDC fan connection? Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's the work in class thing, and I hate to use that term, but it's just that, uh, you, you know, it's the same as the guys in New Jersey, you know, the guys in Philly, Pittsburgh, Newcastle, Glasgow, Manchester, Liverpool, you know, it's just this gritty, you know, down to, you know, we'll, we'll all stick together kind of thing. And it, it's a, and it's a wonderful honesty I find, you know, with people like that. They really will tell you what you what they think, you know. There's, first of all, they don't have the big words in their arsenal to to be a diplomat because diplomats are just slimy gits who use big words to tell lies. Am I right? Yeah, <laughs> so, no doubt. So you know, we, we have what we've got, and we tell the truth. And, and I think ACDC were always like that. You know, Malcolm and Angus's family from Glasgow, Phil's family, Melbourne, you know, working man, Cliff's dad, working man, Cliff worked in a factory, you know, we're all it. And I think you pick up things from that, from your buddies and your pals and, and that basic honesty that's there. You know, there's always a couple of villains knocking around somewhere. But in general, I think it's, you know, when people think, knowing that you're given everything you've got, I suppose, you know, and there's a few bands that do that, it, you, you can't escape it, you know. It's, and, and it engenders a kind of trust in you, you know. Mm. You know but that, 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 that's just fantastic. Frank. I mean, you know, they're, the, they're the sixth member of the band, we always call them, you know, when we go out. Yeah, they're they're an inc it's incredible. It really is. Okay, well, listen, yeah, my friend, no. I don't I don't want to keep you too much longer, and I don't want to make Pete mad at me because I don't want to say. Well, Pete, <laughs> well, me and Pete have a cheeseburger with one name on it. I let you get to that cheeseburger. <laughs> uh, you and your family enjoy the holidays, and uh, uh, 
Eddie, same to you and yours. Just have a wonderful festive season. Because uh, I'm scared to say Christmas. Oh, bugger. I said it. Okay. Nothing wrong with saying Christmas. Merry Christmas to you and your family. Are you kidding me? Why couldn't you say that? Yeah. On this show, you can absolutely say that. Okay, then, me, son. Well, you have a good one. And pull a cracker for me. And when you get to New York, let's go to Staten Island and have some of that good food. You hit me up. Oh, that's a deal. I'll go there anytime. <laughs> you said last time we bring, talked. Bring an appetite. Eddie, bring an appetite. You don't have to ask me twice you. about an appetite. You know, you you were doing that TV show that we, we were seeing. Uh, you were doing your, your TV show at the time, and we talked about when you were going to come here that we would get together and go there. So we still have to do that. I wonder what I was doing. Are you still uh, going to do that made. TV show? The, the show when you were going around interviewing people. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I suppose I haven't got time, really. You know, it takes so much time doing that shit, you know? <laughs> uh, no, it really does, you know, and uh, I enjoyed it thoroughly. And, I, you know, I just put the people I wanted to speak to. And, uh, it's great. Yeah, and I know the bastards to do some more, but I'll see. I'll see how I feel. Yeah. You're going to do you know, another no book? Idea, no? Brian, real quick, you're going to do another book the next half of your <laughs> life Never. or no? Never? Never. No? Never. Ever, never. One's enough, believe me. You got a lot of stories to tell, Brian. You could do five books. Ah, uh, yeah, now, well, you'll have to come and have a beer with us. <laughs> consider it. You hear them, Eddie. Consider it a deal. <laughs> we'll, do, we'll do that. Thank okay. you, Brian. Thank you so much for the Thank time. You, Eddie, me son. Don't get us into trouble. Uh, you got Shut it. Up. I promise you I won't. <laughs> bye bye, me Take son. Take care, man. Bye bye. <laughs> Well, that was absolutely awesome. I cannot thank Brian Johnson enough for doing it. Check out his book. As you can hear, he is a total character. He is the real deal. And we've had some amazing times over the years. And I look forward to getting more into his book when I have some additional time to, to, to read it. Unfortunately, I didn't have a chance to read it prior to that interview, which I disclosed to him. But I did have some bullet points. And as you can hear, Brian had plenty to talk about. And we got into a lot of good stuff. As you could also hear, he wanted no part talking about any future activity from ACDC. And, you know, I referenced this in the interview, and I've said it before. Brian Johnson often comes off to me like a guy that is just keeping the seat warm in ACDC, even though he's been in the band over 40 years. And he never wants to take the initiative on anything. You know, that's why he didn't even talk much about his time in ACDC in his own book, he's always going to defer to what Angus is thinking and wants to do. And, uh, you know, it was a funny moment there because nobody told me I couldn't ask about ACDC. And his reaction there is uh, is priceless. And the guy he was calling out for is a mutual friend of ours named Pete Merluzzi. And again, I logical question anybody should ask that's doing their job is, are you going to do anything with your band? But clearly, Brian wanted no part of that. But we got a ton of other great stuff from him in that interview, which, by the way, that I just thought of this. That interview aired live on Sirius XM on my daily show, and it made news after it happened. And one of the news talking points that came out of that interview in the media was the fact that Brian wouldn't answer the ACDC question. So his non-answer and non-info became a story. <laughs> Which is exactly why he doesn't want to, you know, doesn't want to go there. Because he knows how everything just gets blown up and taken out of 
proportion, especially with the ACDC faithful who are so starved for any, any information. All right, so hope you enjoyed that. I know you did. I know I did. It's always great to talk to Brian. And again, join me next Thursday for another new episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Listen to me every day in the U.S. and Canada on Sirius XM Channel 103 Faction Talk, live 3 to 5 Eastern or anytime on the Sirius XM app, on social media, at Eddie Trunk, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook page. Thanks to Joel Pollack, as always, for producing. Thank you for listening. Have a great, happy, healthy New Year, everybody. Hopefully catch you on the radio, if not back here next Thursday for another episode of the podcast. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.